Section 8 of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avayi in June 2019. Chapter 5 The Finding of the Tomb. The history of the valley, as I have endeavored to show in former chapters, has never lacked the dramatic element, and in this, the latest episode, it has held to its traditions. For consider the circumstances. This was to be our final season in the valley. Six full seasons we had excavated there, and season after season had drawn a blank. We had worked for months at a stretch and found nothing, and only an excavator knows how desperately depressing that can be. We had almost made up our minds that we were beaten, and were preparing to leave the valley and try our luck elsewhere. And then, hardly had we had set hold to ground in our last despairing effort, than we made a discovery that far exceeded our wildest dreams. Surely, never before in the whole history of excavation has a full digging season been compressed within the space of five days. Let me try and tell the story of it all. It will not be easy, for the dramatic suddenness of the initial discovery left me in a dazed condition, and the months that have followed have been so crowded with incident that I have hardly had time to think. Setting it down on paper will perhaps give me a chance to realize what has happened and all that it means. I arrived in Luxor on October 28th, and by November 1st I had enrolled my workmen and was ready to begin. Our former excavations had stopped short at the northeast corner of the tomb of Ramesses VI, and from this point I started trenching southwards. It will be remembered that in this area there were a number of roughly constructed workmen's huts, used probably by the laborers in the tomb of Ramesses. These huts, built about three feet above bedrock, covered the whole area in front of the Ramesside tomb, and continued in a southerly direction to join up with a similar group of huts on the opposite side of the valley, discovered by Davis in connection with his work on the Ankenatun cache. By the evening of November 3rd we had laid bare a sufficient number of these huts for experimental purposes, so, after we had planned and noted them, they were removed, and we were ready to clear away the three feet of soil that lay beneath them. Hardly had I arrived on the work next morning, November 4th, than the unusual silence, due to the stoppage of the work, made me realize that something out of the ordinary had happened, and I was greeted by the announcement that a step cut in the rock had been discovered underneath the very first hut to be attacked. This seemed too good to be true, but a short amount of extra clearing revealed the fact that we were actually in the entrance of a steep cut in the rock, some thirteen feet below the entrance to the tomb of Ramesses VI, and a similar depth from the present bed-level of the valley, Plate 9. The manner of cutting was that of the sunken stairway entrance so common in the valley, and I almost dared to hope that we had found our tomb at last. Work continued feverishly throughout the whole of that day and the morning of the next, 
but it was not until the afternoon of November 5th that we succeeded in clearing away the masses of rubbish that overlay the cut, and were able to demarcate the upper edges of the stairway on all its four sides. Plate 12. It was clear by now beyond any question that we actually had before us the entrance to a tomb, but doubts, born of previous disappointments, persisted in creeping in. There was always the horrible possibility, suggested by our experience in the Tothmes Third Valley, that the tomb was an unfinished one, never completed and never used. If it had been finished, there was the depressing probability that it had been completely plundered in ancient times. On the other hand, there was just the chance of an untouched or only partially plundered tomb, and it was with ill-suppressed excitement that I watched the descending steps of the staircase, as one by one they came to light. The cutting was excavated in the side of a small hillock, and, as the work progressed, its western edge receded under the slope of the rock, until it was, first partially, and then completely, roofed in, and became a passage, ten feet high by six feet wide. Work progressed more rapidly now, step succeeded step, and at the level of the twelfth, towards sunset, there was disclosed the upper part of a doorway, blocked, plastered, and sealed. A sealed doorway. It was actually true, then. Our years of patient labor were to be rewarded after all, and I think my first feeling was one of congratulation that my faith in the valley had not been unjustified. With excitement growing to fever heat, I searched the seal impressions on the door for evidence of the identity of the owner, but could find no name. The only decipherable ones were those of the well-known royal necropolis seal, the jackal and nine captives. Two facts, however, were clear. First, the employment of this royal seal was certain evidence that the tomb had been constructed for a person of very high standing, and second, that the sealed door was entirely screened from above by workmen's huts of the twentieth dynasty was sufficiently clear proof that at least from that date it had never been entered. With that for the moment I had to be content. While examining the seals I noticed, at the top of the doorway, where some of the plaster had fallen away, a heavy wooden lintel. Under this, to assure myself of the method by which the doorway had been blocked, I made a small peephole, just large enough to insert an electric torch, and discovered that the passage beyond the door was filled completely from floor to ceiling with stones and rubble, additional proof this of the care with which the tomb had been protected. It was a thrilling moment for an excavator. Alone, save for my native workmen, I found myself, after years of comparatively unproductive labor, on the threshold of what might prove to be a magnificent discovery. Anything, literally anything, might lie beyond that passage, and it needed all my self-control to keep from breaking down the doorway and investigating then and there. One thing puzzled me, and that was the smallness of the opening in comparison with the ordinary valley tombs. The design was certainly of the 18th dynasty. Could it be the tomb of a noble buried here by royal consent? Was it a royal cache, 
a hiding-place to which a mummy and its equipment had been removed for safety? Or was it actually the tomb of the king for whom I had spent so many years in search? Once more I examined the seal impressions for a clue, but on the part of the door so far laid bare only those of the royal necropolis seal already mentioned were clear enough to read. Had I but known that a few inches lower down there was a perfectly clear and distinct impression of the seal of Tutankhamun, the king I most desired to find, I would have cleared on, had a much better night's rest in consequence, and saved myself nearly three weeks of uncertainty. It was late, however, and darkness was already upon us. With some reluctance I reclosed the small hole that I had made, filled in our excavation for protection during the night, selected the most trustworthy of my workmen, themselves almost as excited as I was, to watch all night above the tomb, and so home by moonlight, riding down the valley. Naturally my wish was to go straight ahead with our clearing to find out the full extent of the discovery, but Lord Carnarvon was in England, and in fairness to him I had to delay matters until he could come. Accordingly, on the morning of November 6th, I sent him the following cable. At last have made wonderful discovery in Valley, a magnificent tomb with seals intact, recovered same for your arrival. Congratulations. My next task was to secure the doorway against interference, until such time as it could finally be reopened. This we did by filling our excavation up again to surface level, and rolling on top of it the large flint boulders of which the workmen's huts had been composed. By the evening of the same day, exactly forty-eight hours after we had discovered the first step of the staircase, this was accomplished. The tomb had vanished. So far as the appearance of the ground was concerned, there never had been any tomb, and I found it hard to persuade myself at times that the whole episode had not been a dream. I was soon to be reassured on this point. News travels fast in Egypt, and within two days of the discovery, congratulations, inquiries, and offers of help descended upon me in a steady stream from all directions. It became clear, even at this early stage, that I was in for a job that could not be tackled single-handed, so I wired to Callender, who had helped me on various previous occasions, asking him, if possible, to join me without delay, and to my relief he arrived on the very next day. On the 8th I had received two messages from Lord Carnarvon in answer to my cable, the first of which read, Possibly come soon, and the second received a little later, Propose arrive Alexandria 20th. We had thus nearly a fortnight's grace, and we devoted it to making preparations of various kinds, so that when the time of reopening came we should be able, with the least possible delay, to handle any situation that might arise. On the night of the 18th I went to Cairo for three days to meet Lord Carnarvon and make a number of necessary purchases, returning to Luxor on the 21st. On the 23rd Lord Carnarvon arrived in Luxor with his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, his devoted companion in all his Egyptian work, and everything was in hand for the beginning of the second chapter of the discovery of the tomb. 
Calendar had been busy all day clearing away the upper layer of rubbish, so that by morning we should be able to get into the staircase without any delay. By the afternoon of the 24th, the whole staircase was clear, 16 steps in all, plate 13, and we were able to make a proper examination of the sealed doorway. On the lower part, the seal impressions were much clearer, and we were able without any difficulty to make out on several of them the name of Tutankhamun, plate 14. This added enormously to the interest of the discovery. If we had found, as seemed almost certain, the tomb of that shadowy monarch, whose tenure of the throne coincided with one of the most interesting periods in the whole of Egyptian history, we should indeed have reason to congratulate ourselves. With heightened interest, if that were possible, we renewed our investigation of the doorway. Here, for the first time, a disquieting element made its appearance. Now that the whole door was exposed to light, it was possible to discern a fact that had hitherto escaped notice, that there had been two successive openings and reclosings of a part of its surface. Furthermore, that the ceiling originally discovered, the jackal and nine captives, had been applied to the reclosed portions, whereas the ceilings of Tutankhamun covered the untouched part of the doorway, and were therefore those with which the tomb had been originally secured. The tomb then was not absolutely intact, as we had hoped. Plunderers had entered it, and entered it more than once, from the evidence of the huts above, plunderers of a date not later than the reign of Ramesses VI, but that they had not rifled it completely was evident from the fact that it had been resealed. Footnote. From later evidence we found that this resealing could not have taken place later than the reign of Horemhab, i.e. from ten to fifteen years after the burial. End footnote. Then came another puzzle. In the lower strata of rubbish that filled the staircase we found masses of broken potsherds and boxes, the latter bearing the names of Ankenatun, Smenkare, and Tutankhamun, and, what was much more upsetting, a scarab of Tothmes III, and a fragment with the name of Amenhotep III. Why this mixture of names? The balance of evidence so far would seem to indicate a cache rather than a tomb, and at this stage in the proceedings we inclined more and more to the opinion that we were about to find a miscellaneous collection of objects of the 18th dynasty kings, brought from Tel el Amarna by Tutankhamun, and deposited here for safety. So matters stood on the evening of the 24th. On the following day the sealed doorway was to be removed, so Calendar set carpenters to work making a heavy wooden grill to be set up in its place. Mr. Engebach, chief inspector of the Antiquities Department, paid us a visit during the afternoon and witnessed part of the final clearing of rubbish from the doorway. On the morning of the 25th, the seal impressions on the doorway were carefully noted and photographed, and then we removed the actual blocking of the door, consisting of rough stones carefully built from floor to lintel, and heavily plastered on their outer faces to take the seal impressions. This disclosed the beginning of a descending passage, not a staircase, the same width as the entrance stairway, 
and nearly seven feet high. As I had already discovered from my hole in the doorway, it was filled completely with stone and rubble, probably the chip from its own excavation. This filling, like the doorway, showed distinct signs of more than one opening and reclosing of the tomb, the untouched part consisting of clean white chip mingled with dust, whereas the disturbed part was composed mainly of dark flint. It was clear that an irregular tunnel had been cut through the original filling at the upper corner on the left side, a tunnel corresponding in position with that of the hole in the doorway. As we cleared the passage we found, mixed with the rubble of the lower levels, broken potsherds, jar ceilings, alabaster jars, whole and broken, vases of painted pottery, numerous fragments of smaller articles, and water skins, these last having obviously been used to bring up the water needed for the plastering of the doorways. These were clear evidence of plundering, and we eyed them askance. By night we had cleared a considerable distance down the passage, but as yet saw no sign of second doorway or of chamber. The day following, November 26th, was the day of days, the most wonderful that I have ever lived through, and certainly one whose like I can never hope to see again. Throughout the morning the work of clearing continued, slowly perforce, on account of the delicate objects that were mixed with the filling. Then, in the middle of the afternoon, thirty feet down from the outer door, we came upon a second sealed doorway, almost an exact replica of the first. The seal impressions in this case were less distinct, but still recognizable as those of Tutankhamun and of the royal necropolis. Here again the signs of opening and reclosing were clearly marked upon the plaster. We were firmly convinced by this time that it was a cache that we were about to open, and not a tomb. The arrangement of stairway, entrance passage and doors reminded us very forcibly of the cache of Ankenatun and Taiyi material found in the very near vicinity of the present excavation by Davis, and the fact that Tutankhamun's seals occurred there likewise seemed almost certain proof that we were right in our conjecture. We were soon to know. There lay the sealed doorway, and behind it was the answer to the question. Slowly, desperately slowly it seemed to us as we watched, the remains of passage debris that encumbered the lower part of the doorway were removed, until at last we had the whole door clear before us. The decisive moment had arrived. With trembling hands I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner. Darkness and blank space, as far as an iron testing rod could reach, showed that whatever lay beyond was empty, and not filled like the passage we had just cleared. Candle tests were applied as a precaution against possible foul gases, and then, widening the hole a little, I inserted the candle and peered in, Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Callender standing anxiously beside me to hear the verdict. At first I could see nothing, the hot air escaping from the chamber causing the candle flame to flicker, but presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold, everywhere the glint of gold. For the moment, 
an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement, and when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, Yes, wonderful things. Then, widening the hole a little further, so that we both could see, we inserted an electric torch. End of section 8